Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. All right, fans of our comedy intros, uh, we're not doing one today for reasons that are, well, I think they'll become um, evident. I think I probably won't even have to explain them. But um, anyway, we'll come to all that. Let me tell you what's going on later in the show today. It's uh, our Monday scramble. Uh, We try to put together some stuff in a very timely fashion. So, and this isn't really all that timely. The second segment of the show, we're going to talk about um, Black Messiah, which is a, a new album. Uh, when I say new, it was actually released December 15th by the artist D'Angelo. D'Angelo is this very sort of enig- enigmatic and complicated um, artist who, who releases albums about once every 14 years, uh, and this time without much warning. Uh, it really might be the best album uh, of 2014, but it was in the way that it came out, people could very easily have missed the whole thing. So anyway, Brian Francis Slattery, who's the guy who originally introduced me to D'Angelo, uh, will be he's been obsessing about Black Messiah. We're going to kind of take you through that album. We haven't never really done anything quite like this before, but we'll, we'll take you through a lot of the cuts from that album and, and tell you why. Uh, maybe you should be interested in it. And then at the end of the show today, we're going to talk a little bit about the TV program Transparent, which uh, uh, gobbled up a couple of really important Golden Globes last night, assuming that a Golden Globe can be important. Uh, but the show's important. The show's important in its depiction uh, of the trans community. And we're going to talk about um, to June Thomas, one of our favorite commentators uh, about both television and LGBT issues. Uh, she's the perfect storm for this uh, about why this TV show matters to that community and, and maybe how it matters. Uh, and, and for all I know, I'm not even schooled enough to know whether there may be some backlash against it, too. I wouldn't be surprised if there was. I think it's a great show. But anyway, we're going to start today kind of where we finished on Friday, almost. Um, On on Friday, we did talk uh, about um, satire uh, in the wake of the Charlie Hebdo massacre. Um, And we're going to keep talking about it because uh, I think it's a really complicated, really layered uh, question. In fact, there's sort of an intriguing irony of the Charlie Hebdo story because uh, it's a story about transgressive and often kind of tasteless satirists uh, who were fond of saying or drawing that which is really almost forbidden. Uh, and now there's sort of, there's like a lot of things you're forbidden to talk about in connection with the Charlie Hebdo massacre. Not really literally for, forbidden, but uh, feels like you're on shaky ground. Uh, on Friday, we explored, uh, when I say we, uh, three of the nose panelists and I explored our own kind of complicated and layered and at times nuanced, I hope, attitudes uh, towards the satire of Char- Charlie Hebdo. And none of that amounted to saying, and so they deserved what they got. But some listeners kind of almost heard it that way. So uh, first of all, that's not what we meant. Uh, and we're going to talk about it some more. We're going to talk to s- talk now to some people really on the front lines of it. We're going to talk to some cartoonists uh, with us uh, by phone are Dan Perkins, a cartoonist better known by his pen name Tom Tomorrow. Uh, his weekly cartoon is called This Modern World. You can check him out at thismodernworld.com. Also, Matt Davies, author, illustrator, and staff cartoonist for Newsday. Um, so, um, Dan Perkins, I'll start with you. You've been a visitor to our studios before. Um, going forward uh, from this, does the, does the Charlie Hebdo massacre 
kind of change any of your thinking about what it is that you do? Do you feel either moved to do something, to draw something, to write something different than what you would have written before, or do you feel moved not to do certain things because of what happened in Paris? Um, hey, Colin. Hi, Matt. Um, no, I, I think I can say with with complete honesty that it doesn't change the way I approach my work at all. Um, it's it's a it, it's been a profoundly moving and 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 disturbing experience. But I don't. I mean, and and you know, I, there's a cartoon that I've I've put up that I did last week, almost in the immediate aftermath. That's that's more of a tribute to the cartoonist than anything else. Um, but you know, I it's not going to change what I do or what I write about. Now that said. Um, I'm not the sort of cartoonist who uh, gratuitously attacks uh, religious symbols. That's just kind of not my interest. Um, so it's 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 just it's just less of an issue for me. Um, Matt Davies, that even the phrase that he just used, uh, which is uh, a phrase that I too would use, gratuitously attack religious symbols, or right. maybe maybe gratuitously isn't exactly the right word, but this is one of the things that's going uh, that was going on with with Charlie Hebdo. Uh, nobody would ever say that they are to blame for what happened to them or that they deserved it, but you could sort of make the argument they were at, literally asking for trouble. I mean, they were drawing symbols about uh, symbols that that um, a small constituency of Islam has already indicated that they'll react to violently under certain circumstances, uh, that, that they were engaged in a very intentional kind of provocation. And, and in some ways, I would imagine being an American cartoonist in a fairly safe environment, it's kind of hard to imagine what it would be like to be doing something like that with the actual real possibility of violence uh, and, and death. Um, I, I mean, do yeah. you feel almost like we're like kind of insulated from that? Um. Yeah, I think they probably felt somewhat insulated too. Um, um, I know their their offices have been firebombed, but um, it, uh, I mean, I agree with with what Dan said. I'm I'm very similar. You know, I don't gratuitously attack. Uh, I don't gratuitously attack anything. I I put a, you know just like Dan, I put a great deal of thought into into who I want to attack, and I'm fairly surgically precise about it. Um, as far as blowback, you know, we get. Uh, uh, us cartoonists, you know, if you look at our comment sections and uh, and um, and if you could take a look inside our e email inboxes and our phone messages, uh, etc., we 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 get a lot of sometimes very nasty feedback. And sometimes um, very frightening feedback. I mean, yeah. it's it's kind of a lonely place to be a cartoonist criticizing gun rights groups, let alone uh, criticizing the direction the country was going in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, that was a very lonely and scary place to be. Right, right. It, it, and you, it, so you, so we, we are, you know, we, we, we don't feel, I think we feel, I think there's a feeling of safety. I mean, the, the events of the last few weeks, you know, I mean, obviously when it happened, there was shock, just like we're, as any human, any human being with, a, with any conscience and a, and a heartbeat was just shocked by what happened. But now we've had time to kind of digest and we, Understand a little bit more about the Charlie Hebdo cartoonists and 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 where they fit within their society. I mean, Paris, you know, in France, France is a very different society than the one that we live in here in in, in North America. Um, there are a lot more. I mean, this is a fairly puritanical country when you compare it. To, I mean, I mean, for God's sakes, you know, we wear bathing suits on the beach and things like that. Um, there, they are. You know, it's a different society. Um, and you know, that said. Um, 
you know, we, they, I think they felt that they had uh, some degree of, of protection just by virtue of their, their society's open, openness, and, you know, in terms of, you know, the, the poor taste, and I'm doing air quotations, of their, of their material, of their cartoons. They had a right to do it, and that's sort of, that was just part of it. Um, you know, uh, as far as, as far as, you know, our own, say, that was such a, what happened, like, that was like what happened before Wednesday, and then after Wednesday, when this whole thing happened, it's now just, it now just feels surreal, mm-hmm. and that, it still doesn't seem like a reality. I mean, I think Dan and I probably feel exactly the same way in terms of, well, our biggest fear would be maybe, you know, feeling threatened. I've been sued. I, I personally have been sued. Uh, I've been issued death threats. And you never really, apart from being sued, which had got thrown out of court because we have, you know, First Amendment, um, it, it, you never actually feel like you're going to get anything more than that. And the notion that you're sitting in your office after having done what, you know, made your, your marks on your piece of paper and, and you know, um, and the, the fact that you could be sort of executed in like a battlefield style execution is beyond the realm of i mean i'm still having such a difficult time just comprehending that that was the response to 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 what yeah can i can i also throw in that i may have used the wrong word when i say gratuitous now um i think like almost everyone commenting on this i have gone from zero to 60 getting up to speed on charlie abdo since these shootings um, and I think I think it's a dangerous thing to to just look at images entirely out of context with no understanding. I'm, I'm certainly no expert on French politics and, and French culture and what have you. But the more I'm reading about this, the more um, I am reading francophones and, and, and people immersed in the culture, the more I'm reading defenses that these guys were pro-immigrant left-wing guys who were using the symbols of the opposition in order to satirize it much the same way in a more mild way that Stephen Colbert did. Um, I'm not, you know, I, I have looked up, I have looked at all these these um, these truly, what, what strike our American eyes as, as truly dreadful and offensive images, and there's there's a story behind all of them. There's a story that would be understood by the French audience reading them. So I, I, I think that it's a little unfair to just say they were being gratuitously nasty. I think they were, they were satirists, and they were satirists in a way that strikes our eyes as very crude and, and what have you. But we're, we're coming at this from the outside. And, and the other thing I'll say is that I've seen this dynamic play out even just in America. I, if you remember uh, Barry Blitz' New Yorker cover mm-hmm. uh, from right. 2008, uh, it showed uh, Barack Obama with a turban and Michelle as a black militant, and they're burning an American flag, and they have a picture of Osama bin Laden up over the mantelpiece. And it couldn't be more obviously a satirical uh, comment on the Fox News uh, worldview if it had a, you know, a big headline superimposed saying, this is a satirical <laughs> comment on the Fox News worldview. And yet this caused a firestorm of criticism in America from other uh, Americans Americans who, who, uh, upon whom the context was entirely lost. So I think we should be really careful about making blanket statements about this thing, this culture that really most of us don't have a very strong grasp of. Yeah, I, I think I think that's a really good point. And um, and 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 uh, what you said, Dan, about um, the fact that we, you know you sort of had to quickly learn about what Charlie Hebdo meant in in French society and over the last few over the last few days. And it seems that. Um, you know, in context, 
all of the stuff that they were doing, like behind the scenes, and I saw a video of, of uh, a documentary of them um, in an editorial meeting. These, these were people coming from the left, from the left wing. They were um, vehemently anti-racist, vehemently anti-national front, um, anti-Marie Le Pen, you know, the Le Pen. Um, uh, I mean, they were... They the were far right of, of French politics. Sorry, far right French politics. Right, right. I mean, they, these were... So a lot of what they were doing in context was making fun of the people that they disagreed with for being racist. For right, being so, so, so sometimes they would draw an image that we would find shocking, an image of a black... Um, minister uh, within the French government uh, depicted as a monkey. Now their right. point is that's how. But the, the, that the, was a direct satire. It has the the, the National Front logo right, right there. It's right. a satire of a National Front slogan and something that was being discussed in in French politics at that time. So, I mean, I, I find that a, a, a shocking image and and would never do such would never would never approach my own craft that way but it's it's entirely a misreading of it to say well they were obviously right-wing racists no I, they're obviously not and and same thing with one of the other really problematic images the ones uh, of the boko boko haram sex slaves who were depicted as as pregnant uh, welfare moms uh, once again they're 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 putting in concrete visible terms an attitude or or some speech that has been engaged in by people on the right in order to call attention to that and to satirize it. But, you know, when people are so thick as to not understand that the New Yorker, think about what the New Yorker is, that the New Yorker was not intentionally or, or you know, seriously portraying Barack Obama and, and Michelle Obama as Muslim terrorists and, and Angela Davis clones. When people are that stupid, you, you do start to wonder, you know, I mean, I, for example, I've been wondering, and I, I, I'd be interested to know what you think, why President Obama or nor Vice President Biden or, nor anybody else of any high rank showed up in Paris on Sunday and whether that has something to do with the conversation we're having right now. I think it hasn't. I mean, purely speculation. I've, I've seen, you know, nothing, no statement uh, on it either way. But I, my guess is it's 100 uh, percent. Uh, this administration is a very cautious administration. They're very risk adverse, risk averse. And, and I think they just don't want to be anywhere near this conversation, honestly. And it's, it's, it's too bad. Yeah, I, I would agree with that estimation. That sounds that sounds in character. Yeah, you know, just to go back to the first thing that you said, uh, you know, that this isn't the kind of work, the kind of cartooning that they do, isn't the kind of work that you do. In other words, you wouldn't draw the Prophet Muhammad engaged in some kind of, you know, gynecological or. But neither would I would I draw Jesus Christ engaged in in, you know, some similar activity. That's just not how I approach. I'm trying to have a conversation with readers. I'm trying to persuade persuadable people, and and I'm trying to mock people who are not persuadable. But um, I don't approach it as a a fist in the face. That doesn't mean I mean, you know, that doesn't mean uh, uh, that mine is the only approach. It's just what works for me temperamentally and artistically. 
But I guess what, one of the things I'm curious about is, and by the way, I mean, I've written satire for most of my life and, and, and engaged in commentary that wasn't satire and had pretty much the same experiences that you guys have. Although I do think cartoonists kick some kind of tripwire that nobody else can kick. I don't know what it is. <laughs> but, but I, you know, I've had the threats and the this and the that. But, you know, one of the things that I never thought very much about is collateral damage, as the army calls it. Uh, and so you, you look at a situation like Paris. Well, there's, you know, four dead hostages in a Paris deli. Uh, and, and I sort of wonder how... I or any defender of satire or you or any defender of satire would talk to their families and say, you know, it's really worth it. It's really worth it to have a free enough society where a, pu- a publication like Charlie Hebdo can can confront um, radical Islam about its its intolerance uh, and that we we really do have to wear just these Charlie buttons and and stand for this. Uh, because it's an important facet uh, of a healthy civilization that these kinds of views can be aired and these kinds of confrontations can take place. I I wonder if uh, how easy that would be to explain to somebody grieving the loss of a close relative who had nothing to do with the satire business but just got caught in that crossfire. And I, I don't know about you guys, I never really thought about that before. Wow. Well, my first thought is there's there's certainly a lot of blowback in the world uh, for things that have nothing to do with satire. I'd say if you tallied up the victims, uh, that the the non-satire side of the scale uh, would be a lot heavier than the satire side of the scale. I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm actually Matt. You got anything? Uh, well, you know, it feels. I mean. I hadn't thought about that, but you know, one, one, I think you know, if you kind of pull back a little bit and look at this in context, you know, we're, we, we, there's a, this isn't just about satire. This is about this, 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 this clash of cultures that's occurring right now in the 21st century, and you know, a lot of people are dying and have died um, that have nothing to do with with what's happening. I mean, for instance, you know, I mean, we attacked. Iraq for uh, some Saudi Arabians flying jets into the World Trade Centers, and you know, like there, that, that seems to be that, that there seems to be a lot of, of you know, well, I'm going to get your guys and you're going to get my guys, and 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 there's a lot of groupthink about all this stuff, and it feels very, um, I don't know, I mean, to you know, the the, the notion that the that the that the people who were killed in Paris died just because of the cartoons mm-hmm. is probably... That's a pretty tunnel vision. Uh, not true. Yeah, mm-hmm. you've got to look at all the whole... I mean, that it's, it's sort of like the cartoons themselves. Uh, there's a story there, and there's, you know, we're, if it happened in a vacuum, it, w- it's, it, 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 it makes... I mean, it makes no sense anyway, but it really doesn't make sense if you don't take into context all of the things that happen and all of the people who have died, you know, the people that, 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 that... On both sides, you know, I mean, you know... From 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 Iraq and Afghanistan and and and, and the Boko Haram and like there's it's it's a it's a this horrific. it also seems like a slippery slope. Where do we where do we stop discussing anything for fear that we're going to trigger some sociopath? And and let's keep in mind that's really what we're talking about here. These guys were just murderers. They were sociopaths. They got set off by this stuff. But you know we can't. Uh, I mean honestly, just judging from some of the stuff I get email about. Um, you know, should I stop talking about abortion rights? Should I sh- should I stop talking about uh, police killing unarmed black men? I mean, everything I write about seems to make somebody really, really angry. 
Yeah, and I yeah. think I think maybe that's one of the places you kind of have to land, right? I mean, I was thinking about that even last night. I was watching the Golden Globes, and Tina Fey and Amy Poehler kind of went there, as they say, about Bill Cosby, uh, told a series of Bill Cosby jokes, which I thought were, you know, pretty well pointed and, and to my way of thinking, funny and, and worth doing. Now, the woman sitting next to me didn't because rape is not funny ever, and I get that. Uh, but these two women, uh, Tina Fey and Amy Poehler, they paint in the medium of humor. They're either going to take Bill Cosby apart in a funny way or they're, they're going to be silent about him. I'd rather have them do the former. And so we talked about that a little bit. And that's one of the things that happens in this society is that, you know, you and I can each look at a piece of satire and have a different reaction to it. One of us might like it. One of us might not. We talk it out. That's part of what makes satire important is the conversation sometimes that comes afterwards. But, you know, just it, it kind of goes back to what, Matt saying, I just don't know how to plug all of that, which I totally believe in, into a world where people can show up with guns. It seems so surreal. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, yeah. I would agree. Uh, obviously, the I think that's I think that that's that's the line you would you know you would that's the line that we're that we're walking on is you know what 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 you say how's how can it be used against you? Um, you know, I mean we. We, you know, and cartoonists, uh, uh, like all satirists, are, you know, I mean, what what we do is nonviolent protest. <laughs> you know, we 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 sit in a, at a drawing table and we we think about things and we put them out there and and um, you know and, and and we don't expect violence in return. So um, so I don't know. I mean, it's I mean, th- and and this is a this is a, a, a discussion that's been going on among cartoonists and in you know. Among them, actually, and in their heads. I mean, there's definitely this. This these events have definitely, you know, I, I've been asked, you know, has, and as you asked earlier, does this change anything? Does this make you, does this make you do different work? And 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 of course it doesn't. But it would be a complete lie to say, well, but I'm not thinking about this. You know, mm-hmm. like this isn't something that like this goes in. This now goes into the toolbox. Uh, you know, of what what. Could happen if somebody misinterprets you, or um, uh, which is which is which, as you can see, is is happens. You know, misinterpretation is. I mean, the you know the, these these cartoons in Charlie Hebdo were essentially misinterpreted. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't matter. You know, once once you're dead, it doesn't doesn't matter. You're not going to sit down with jihadis and explain the nuance of Western. Um, you know, culture and, and satire, and how actually this is funny. Even though the, the two French guys, the two guys that did it, were you know grew up in in France, which is so they. So I, I have a feeling they really did understand. Yeah, um, no, we're going to have to wrap up this conversation pretty quickly, but we do have a call here from David in Hartford. Hi, David, you're on the air. Uh, hi, um, I don't know if uh, this fits in, but uh, I don't really think uh, it's an issue of satire or any other form of expression so much as. Um, a matter of faith. Uh, people, if they believe that their prophet or their god or their deity, whatever they believe in, needs a defense, then they will attack a cartoonist or a military installation or an embassy. It doesn't matter. And when they killed these people, when they murdered them, they were heard to have said, something to the effect of we have avenged Allah or we have avenged our God. Mm-hmm. Well, little old me, I don't think God needs my defense. 
Right. So, but you, you're, so you're saying the fact that it's satire is kind of that's that, that's an arbitrary part of this story. It could be almost anything, right? I think that's right. Yeah. I think, but it's what we're discussing today. I mean, we just we just had five cartoonists and and then. Uh, you know, seven other people, and then four more people after that killed because these guys drew cartoons. So it, it's, you know, um, at the moment, it's satire. Next time, it'll be something else. Um, I think I accidentally muted my phone for a minute there, but I wanted to add something to what Matt was saying. That sure. uh, This guy, uh, Tim Holder, wrote something on Comics Journal today that I thought was really good. Uh, satire is an unusual art form in that it is designed to be misunderstood. Um, and mm. the problem, you know, to... To, to take the opponent's views and, and take them to this absurd uh, length uh, to show the, uh, their absurdity. And um, we're in a situation now where the people misunderstanding satire have Kalishnikovs and AK-47s uh, instead of just writing an angry email. Right. Hey, Dan Perkins and Matt Davies, you guys were great. Somebody just suggested you should do a panel together at the Mark Twain House. I love that idea. Uh, it's a serious topic, but thanks so much for being so great about it. When we come back, Brian Francis Slattery and I will talk about a happier subject, the release of a really, really great new album. To be. As long as the billion strong, we keep defeat to march in streets and guard belief that our words are truly ours to speak. If armies can see few shots get breached, men would pen set their own hearts free. My words for those poor fools would be. Je suis Charlie. Je suis Charlie. That's just a little bit of Betray My Heart from the D'Angelo release, Black Messiah. We could say it was a long-awaited release, uh, and we would be right. On the other hand, it's also a release that caught a lot of people by surprise. Brian Francis Slattery is with us. He is many things, and he's been with us many times under many circumstances. He's a writer. He's arts and culture editor now for the New Haven Independent. Um, and uh, his uh, latest novel is The Family Hightower. Um, but Brian Francis Slattery was, I think, with us for the first time ever on a show that we were doing about people who, artists, creative people who have a hard time finishing things. Yep. Uh, and Brian had brought us a whole bunch of examples of that, including Voodoo by D'Angelo, uh, which was this long-awaited uh, masterpiece by D'Angelo, which he had a lot of time uh, and a lot of trouble getting to. Little did we know, or maybe we did know, that we'd be having another conversation about this. Uh, That's right. Uh, because That's Black, right. Black Messiah took f 14 years to percolate and a lot of time and trouble and travail and time in rehab and car accidents and drug problems and breaks up, breakups with girlfriends, but also just a lot of creative turmoil to get to this particular thing. So uh, was it worth the journey? I, I think you think it was. Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that's great about the, you know, the, the backstory for this album is that you discover that he started working on it, you know, pretty much as soon as he finished the last one, that it really did just take him 14 years to make it. 
but it's it's you know it is I, I think for a lot of people it's turned out to be worth the wait i mean it has it you know the, one of the things about voodoo is that it, his previous album was that it had a lot of stuff on it that made you think well this guy is going to this guy is going to subtly redefine what this genre is capable of and you know this the the black messiah definitely sort of continues in that trend and i mean to me it's to me it's a pretty like logical and really exciting evolution in the sound we're going mean, to be we're going to be playing some cuts from the album but Brian if you were to try to explain to somebody who'd never heard of D'Angelo who, who is this guy i mean wh- what would be your sort of thumbnail sketch uh, of who D'Angelo is um i think that the i mean the the, the really quick way to do it because you know somebody actually asked me over the over the holidays who d'angelo was and it led to this like super long conversation because i like him so much but you know i think that the easiest way to put it is that he's he's you know he's one of those kind of musical prodigies who you know almost sort of against all odds in some ways became a star you know he's he's uh he's he's an amazing singer an amazing piano player and now an amazing guitar player Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then you know, is also capable of writing these songs and the, that that let him execute these. For people who like rhythm, um, the, this is, it's like a candy store. I mean, there's just so many interesting things that he does with, with rhythm that nobody else does quite like he does. Yeah, let's play a little bit of uh, Another Life. I want to get as much uh, music into this conversation as possible so we're not talking about abstractions. So this is uh, Another Life, one of uh, Brian's other favorite cuts. So, uh, Brian Francis Slattery, one thing that I notice about this, too, is, I mean, there's this incredible lushness that you don't, yeah. and, and, and kind of an organic lushness that you don't really hear that much in R&B these days. Everything else sounds super processed and super technical. And mm-hmm. it's not that he didn't do a lot of fabulous processing here. In fact, this album uh, contains a lot of what are called patches, you know, which yeah. are, are these really, really meticulously wrought, lapidary pieces of instrumentation that don't really even exist anyplace else except as a result result of these incredible exertions by this one artist but somehow or other it sounds it just sounds like a, a very real instrumentally real kind of production yeah i mean i think one of the uh i mean this was true of voodoo too that you 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 discover that you know one of the things that makes the those albums sound the way they do is that he he worked the band really hard mm-hmm. um you know and probably in a really i mean you know it, it was probably exhilarating <laughs> you know to to sort of do a cut and then have him say, you know, this is this is a little too straight. I want it to be like this. I want it to be like that. You know, and, and it, I mean, like Voodoo apparently was like hundreds of hours of stuff to get to the to get to what D'Angelo liked. And, the, you know, judging from the time span to make this one, it probably wasn't all that different here. You know, that it just it just took a while to get the musicians to be able to play like that, you know, as good as they are. You know, there was still a fair amount of, well, I, I don't want it to be like you usually play. I want you to play something that, that is pretty different from what you usually do. 
Um, if my thumbnail description uh, of D'Angelo, it's an inadequate one, but I would I just say if Brian Wilson were black. Uh, <laughs> and, and by that, I mean, obviously, this incredible instrument interest in curating instruments in unusual ways. Yep. Uh, we'll later, a little, a little bit later, we'll hear a song. We won't probably hear these instruments, but you'll if you listen carefully, you'll, you can hear clarinets and some kind of processed bassoon noise and uh, stuff that R&B people aren't necessarily all that interested in most of the time. But yeah, you go yeah and also down, probably also, I think the, the comparison's good also down to the sort of, you know, you get the sense that D'Angelo isn't entirely happy with, right. with, with the product. You know, he's always thinking, well, th- this could be better. He's, <laughs> also not, he's also not only unhappy with the product, he's unhappy with being D'Angelo, right? This is something he, <laughs> he shares with Brian Wilson. It's a deep ambivalence about what it means to be a pop star. Yeah. One problem he has that Brian Wilson didn't have, but it's kind of a Brian Wilson problem. Uh, D'Angelo, uh, as a result of a couple of photo spreads and stuff like that, got kind of typed as this really ripped, six-packy, heavily yep. muscled stud guy, which is apparently not who he was, is, and it completely freaked him out. I mean, it probably added five years to this project that he sure. got identified that way, right? Yeah, and understandably so. I mean, I, I, I mean, especially I think because like his his first album, I think that you know he sort of felt like, well, people understand that I'm a, you know, I'm a. I'm a really good musician, <laughs> and then to suddenly to suddenly be like, well, you're just you're just the guy who takes his shirt off. I mean, it's I I you know I I can't it's it's hard to imagine how 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 you know how anyone would respond to that. But I I, I felt like his reaction was actually pretty darn valid. <laughs> um, yeah, no, yeah. it's not a problem that Brian Wilson ever yeah, had yeah. had the six pack problem. Uh, he had the other kind of six pack problem, but yeah, that's um, right. But 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 it, you can understand his artistic ambivalence about this. Well, let's hear a, another cut. This is um, and we, one thing we should say is and we, we I don't think we can really bring it out just playing little clips here and there. I mean, this is a, a release you really have to sit with for quite a while. But there's one of the reasons supposedly that it may have been brought out, although I guess Brian, you know, some counter narratives is that D'Angelo saw the events in Ferguson and. and and the other related events swirling around and said, wow, there's some things on this that that speak to that. And I really do want to comment on it. And I don't want to wait six months. Um, and, and so I will be getting a little bit into that material, although I guess there's a whole other theory about why it came out early and suddenly. Yeah, I mean, I think that the uh, the, the, the counter narrative to, you know, the, the, the timing seemed right in the, you know, in the popular culture, and that D'Angelo felt like he needed to, he had something to say, mm-hmm. um, which I think is true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the the, al- the album does feel like it's, you know, it was made, you know, more or less in response to what's going on right now. Um, the, yeah, the, the counter narrative is that it did take him a long time, and the executives were this, at Sony were kind of like, you know, enough is enough. You really got to put <laughs> this thing out, and it was supposed to come out earlier than now, and he sort of delayed it and delayed it because he wanted to get it as close to what he imagined as possible. And I, I can actually see both of those stories being yeah. sort of true. He managed to release it in 2014 at a time when he couldn't possibly get on anybody's 10 best list, <laughs> even though it wasn't, and probably nobody knew enough to buy it for anybody for Christmas. Yeah. All right, let's hear a, a cut from the the release. This is called Prayer.
You know, Brian, one of the things that this strikes me about this particular release, too, is that, it, you know, an awful lot of contemporary artists are very rejecting of what came before. This seems to be so much of an embrace of his, of his history and his predecessors. Like the part we just heard from Prayer, where there's that kind of interesting uh, distortion going on. Uh, he sounds a little bit like Prince, but the opening bars of Prayer, yeah. he really sounds like Marvin Gaye. Uh, he managed <laughs> to sound like Marvin Gaye and Prince on one cut. And I, to me, this, that's one of the hallmarks of this release is it really is, you know, a, a very creative response to, to everything that ever shaped him. Yeah. I mean, that's that's what I think that's one of those things that sort of uh, in some ways it's dogged D'Angelo since the beginning that that he's so good at at sort of pulling from the people before him. People will be like, I hear a ton of Sly and the Family Stone, Prince, Jimi Hendrix. I mean, the list is a mile long. Mm. You know, P-Funk comes up a lot, too. And, um, you know, part of part of me likes that because I think it's it's a great way to get people to be interested in the record and to sort of understand you know what what it is he's doing you know that it's not it's not random you know these these are all I, I do think these are all sort of fairly intentional you know it oh, nods yeah. to his predecessors there's no there's no way prayer could open the way that it does without a real intentional yeah uh, yeah absolutely to, to Marvin Gaye absolutely right there. And, uh, and at the same time I mean there I, I do think that at some point, somebody has to has to then turn around and say, "But nobody puts it together like this, right? <laughs> the way that he does." All right, the rest you of know. the D'Angelo uh, community is calling in here. Here's Adam in New Haven. Hi, Adam. Uh, hello. Good. You're on the air. Hi, Adam. All right. Hi. Um, so I just wanted to, to go back to the Brian Wilson thing. You know, I thought uh, the the, uh, the point of you know sort of his uh, sort of retreat from a public persona in a lot of ways, you know, it, it is definitely a parallel to. Brian Wilson, but I think, you know, there's another aspect of Brian Wilson, uh, you know, sort of besides the, the more sordid story that is often not brought up, that I think is also kind of a parallel to D'Angelo, too, um, and that is, I think, of sort of his role as kind of like a, an anthologian, anthologian, how do you say that, of, um, of American music, and sort of like creating yeah. this, this thing that is sort of like a borderline pastiche of, a, you know, of the American music up to that point. I think that's, that's a it, that's a great point. It's another. I mean, so there's sort of three ways. There's the ambivalence towards stardom. There's the creative use of real instruments. I mean, I think they both have now used bassoons, for example. And there's there's that other thing that I hadn't really thought about what, what, that Adam's talking about, which is that um, uh, just the, the the anthologist, the sort of compiler uh, of Americana musical Americana. Uh, Brian Francis Slattery. Before we uh, run out of time, I want to play uh, one of my favorite cuts uh, from this. Uh, incredibly dense. As you say, it is like a box of candy. You can just sort of, you know, keep digging into it. This is a little bit of uh, really love. So you hear that almost flamenco-style guitar uh, up against uh, D'Angelo's kind of trademark mumblecore uh, delivery of his lyrics. Um, <laughs> but there's this that particular cut I thought was so instrumentally rich. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, really, you could just sit there with your headphones on for you know and listen to it 25 times and hear 25 different things. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And then, I mean, it, I, 
it hits you like the, like the running baseline, for example, is one of those things that you know jumped out at me on the second listen, where you go like, "Wow, he's never, <laughs> never in the same place twice." Right, it's you really know. rhythmically really interesting and challenging. Okay, we mm-hmm. also got a call from Charlie. We're going to have to wrap this up pretty soon, unfortunately. I think Brian and I could talk about this uh, release uh, quite a bit more. But hi, Charlie, you're on the air. Well, thanks, uh, and I agree with you. I could talk about this, like, all day. Um, <laughs> I'm just wondering if you could, and I'll keep it quick, if you could talk to anything you know about who's on this. I know that um, Questlove does a lot of drums for D'Angelo, mm-hmm. and Pino Palladino does a lot of bass for him. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, and both of them, I mean, we could talk, you'd have whole shows about either of them as well. Yeah, and, um, and do, Questlove, do you know is, anything else? Questlove has been a huge champion of the CD. In 2007, he leaked one of the tracks of it, I think, to an Australian yeah. radio show or something. But he's the one, really, who's been pushing the this is his smile plus you know miles davis plus Jimi hendrix i mean he's the one who really has been suggesting that this this release black messiah kind of is going to belong in the canon of defining releases by anybody but i don't know if you know uh more of the answer to charlie's question yeah so like they're they're they're, quest love is doing a lot of the drumming on the album and then some of the drumming is being done by a guy named james gadson um who i think as, as far as I know, is responsible for some of the weirder things on the album. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the uh, there's another guitar player who's besides D'Angelo, <laughs> whose name I suddenly can't remember. But he's you know he's he's amazing. Yeah, well, and then there's um, the the same trumpet player who's uh, Roy Hargreaves, who is on Voodoo, is also on this, and who's a substantive uh, instrumentalist in his yeah. own right. Hey, you know we're yeah. gonna, we're going to have to go. We're going to go out. Uh, thanks to Brian Francis Slattery, by the way. I just want to make sure we have some room for June Thomas and our conversation about Transparent. Brian Francis Slattery, ought to read the Family Hightower, his newest novel. He's the arts and culture editor for the New Haven Independent. We're going to go out with one of the political uh, songs on this. It's called uh, Charade. Uh, you. We'll probably hear the line if you listen very carefully. Uh, all we wanted was a chance to talk. Instead, we only got outlined in chalk. This has nothing to do with the people who make those great grilled sandwiches. I'm just checking. Today's show was produced by Tucker Ives and me, Kyone Wolf. Our interns are Lily Tyson and Jackie Felson. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Frank Ocean. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff grooving to the uptown funk of Taylor Swift, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, we talk about spices until the sandworms come and eat us all. And now, back to Colin. Yes, it's about real spices tomorrow, but we will make a lot of sandworms jokes. Hey, I want to do a quick thanks uh, to our friends down in New Haven. The actual staff of the Faith Middleton Show staff, Faith Middleton Show, uh, the people we uh, make fun of every day in the seas, uh, but we actually love them, and that's Laurie Mack and Jonathan McNichol, who helped get Brian Francis Slattery on the air for us. Thanks, uh, Laurie and Jonathan. Uh, All right, uh, time to uh, talk about, um, I think, the most talked about 
a television show. Can you even call it a television show? I guess you can. <laughs> Amazon television show uh, uh, that's out there right now. I was working. I did a, an event uh, about a month ago with uh, with Tim Gunn and uh, Mitch Hurwitz from Arrested Development and Vince Gilligan from uh, Breaking Bad. And backstage, when they were just sort of free to talk about whatever they wanted to talk about, they were talking about Transparent. Uh, and so last night at the Golden Globes, it scooped up a couple of awards. Uh, June Thomas, Slate Culture Critic and editor of Outward Slate's LGBTQ sections. This is the perfect storm for June Thomas. I mean, this <laughs> really is, is. This, this show was made for you to talk about, basically. Um, That's right. I, I guess the first question, watching the show, I feel as though I am being introduced not just to trans life. I mean, I certainly know uh, people who are trans, but, um, but just to, like maybe this entire spectrum of experiences that, that I, I, I wouldn't necessarily encounter. And I'm hearing conversations I wouldn't necessarily uh, hear any other way. I, I, is there a way that you can gauge the reaction of the, the trans community to this? I mean, does everybody like it? Do people think it's too simplistic? Um, how's it going over? Well, you know, I'm not actually sure it, uh, how, how to characterize that. Certainly there have been some complaints uh, that the role of Maura, uh, the, the trans parent who comes out and kind of changes the lives of her kids and the kind of extended family around her, um, isn't played by a trans actress. Uh, the role is played by Jeffrey Tambor, who is a, a cisgender man. Um, and so there's been some uh, complaints about that. And I've also seen other people who are involved in the show, especially trans people, trans actors, say that, you know, they, they feel hurt sometimes when people complain that the show doesn't uh, completely reflect their lives. I think there's always that tendency when something that hasn't really been portrayed in art finally comes into the public eye that people are so invested in, they're so desperate to be reflected after not being reflected for so long that they want it to be just how they see it in their own minds. And so, yes, there have been some complaints but on the whole, I think there is uh, a lot of love and respect, especially for the way that Jill Soloway, the creator, has really involved trans people. This isn't just a kind of a cisgender view of the trans world. And I think a lot of people really appreciate that. Um, last night, uh, Jeffrey Tambor did uh, win one of the major awards. Uh, just uh, here's a few seconds of his acceptance speech where he may have actually even been trying to deal with that a little bit with that that question uh, of uh, of people who, who wish it were someone other than he playing that role. I would like to dedicate my performance and this award to the transgender community. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your courage. Thank you for your inspiration. Thank you for your patience. And thank you for letting us be a part of the change. Thanks. So, you know, I mean, when you watch it, June Thomas, what, it, isn't, it doesn't feel like a white guy playing Othello. Um, uh, maybe that's just my own, you know, uh, hidebounderness that, that I think that. I, I, it, it's more like watching somebody and thinking, I can't imagine anyone else playing this role. He's so good. Uh, I agree completely. He, I mean, he is wonderful in this role. I mean, this is a guy with an amazing career. This isn't some up-and-comer. This is someone who, I don't know about you, but I had... You know, there were, when I thought of Jeffrey Tambor, there were a couple of roles that came into my mind, and I thought nothing would ever displace them. I can't even really remember him in Arrested Development or Gary Sh or or the Larry What's It Show. Larry Sanders Show, yeah. I mean, to me, yeah, I mean, to me now, he's more a Pfefferman. Uh, and 
it's that's a really amazing achievement. And you know, sort of back to the uh, first thing we talked about too. You sort of wonder how fair it is to make this show bear the burden of everybody's expectations. I mean, yeah, obviously it's a show about a parent who is going trans. It's a show about a lot of things, though. I mean, it's a very, very arch parody of Los Angeles. It is a show about selfish and self-involved children. And I I notice in particular, it is a show, not to put it too bluntly, about how people get each other off in all kinds of different ways. Um, Absolutely. I think that's so right. Another thing that I've heard from from many people who belong to this particular community is that it's a very Jewish show, that it's one of the best ever representations of a certain kind of pretty much secular Jewish family uh, and it's wonderful that so many different groups of people say, I see myself in this. To me, um, you know, as you mentioned, uh, the creator of the show, Jill Soloway, also made a speech last night when the show won for, you know, best comedy or musical. And uh, she talked about, you know, thanking her father, who also came out as trans, who I think really is, I think everybody accepts is the inspiration for the show. And she talked about how, you know, Finding your truth and speaking your truth kind of leads other people to recognize their own truth. And in a way, that's the kind of thing that you say it's an awards show, but it really represents what goes on in the show. It is about people kind of getting some news that surprises them and then really paying attention and seeing how it affects them. And even if they're the most self-involved people, they are surprised by what it brings up in their lives. And I think there are many people who can relate to that in, in lots of different ways. And I think, you know, there's, I mean, we're laughing a lot of the time, but we're laughing, I think, in a way uh, where I think everybody feels very included. I mean, we, the audience, feel included, and I think the characters, I mean, there, there's, a, I think, somewhat risible character who's a male, no, female to male transsexual, but he, and he's kind of a lumbersexual, but he also has a vagina. He didn't have the lower surgery, as they say. And there's a right. hilarious scene with him and, and one of the siblings from the family with whom he's engaged in, right. in something, in a bathroom with an artificial... I can't even talk about it on public radio. Right. But it's really, really funny. But it also kind of introduced me in, in, in a very comfortable way, maybe, to the fact that trans can mean all kinds of different things. We only have about 30 seconds, but so right. respond to that. Hey. That's absolutely true, and I think that also uh, represents a very sort of next-level storyline, which is the notion of trans chasers, uh, which is, again, something that I never thought would be on television or on my computer screen. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's a very complex, very deep exploration. All right, trans chasers. All right, that's a whole other show for us. Uh, June Thomas, it's so great to have you back. Oh, we always love to have you here, uh, and everybody should check out your work at Slate.com. Thank you. Always a pleasure. All right. And we thank everybody else, and we got to go.